Welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane, returning refreshed after a jaunt to our capital city, and joining me are pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast... As Manchester United have lost their first game under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer after falling to Champions League defeat to a Neymarless PSG, we assess the performance and ask if the caretaker manager was outmanoeuvred by Thomas Tuchel. Maurizio Pochettino is sure to be in demand at the top clubs this summer and victory over Bundesliga topping Dortmund will surely only serve to whet their appetite. We look at how the Spurs boss has proven himself to be a man who can solve problems and turn adversity into the sweet taste of victory. And the managers in trouble at their Premier League clubs. Should they stick with the same old dross in the hope that things change? Or should they plump for a new boss? Okay, well the gang's all back together. But we might not still be together with our partners, given we are recording this on the evening of Valentine's Day. Are you in trouble, Ian? Um, not so far, thankfully, Johnny. Thank you. But, um, you know, it's early yet. <laughs> I cracked open a bottle of wine earlier on. I think she's asleep on the couch, so should be all right. <laughs> if you hear a slurring, angry woman in the background, you'll know I'm in trouble. <laughs> you'll, you'll be in trouble when she listens to this, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're already in trouble. Moving away from that, before I get myself in serious bother, I think we should probably touch on uh, the performance of Manchester United in their defeat to PSG. Um, first time that uh, Solskjaer's lost the game as the manager of the club. What do we think of this performance? Were you surprised by how insipid United were, Duncan? Um, I, I don't think they were insipid, to be honest. I think they uh, they started very well. They started uh, like a team that was brimful of confidence, and you have to praise um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for the way in which he's filled the team with confidence. I think that's one of the, the, the things he's done very well since taking over the Manchester United job. He's repeatedly talked about talked up his players, um, talked about how good they are, talked about how close they are to being a top-level team, um, uh, set them up in a way and sold a story of them being a super-attacking side again when actually they were being quite astute in the way they were playing against the better teams and actually using a counter-attacking strategy and um, playing Lingard in a, in a hole behind wide forwards and, and and looking to use pace on the break as a way of, of beating opponents he felt were stronger. So, And I think they started the game in a way that it looked like um, they were exactly that team. However, they weren't actually creating very much. Um, they weren't actually putting many shots in and goal. And even more, and even fewer shots in on Buffon, and not stretching them. And I and I think what you saw there was the true level of where Manchester United are as a football club. Um, and it, you know that for all um, the excitement and uh, the joy of um, Solskjaer's results um, in the Premier League and in the FA Cup, um, ultimately you've got to look at the squad of players they have. Um, and that squad of players isn't as good as the best teams in Europe, of which PSG are, are one. Um, and it's not as good as the best teams in the Premier League. So 
you can build your players up and give them confidence and they'll go into a game that way and maybe they'll you know they'll get lucky and score a goal early on you'll get a result from it but the law of averages says eventually you'll come up against a side who've got better footballers and and a coach who's worked out a plan to um to minimize your strengths and maximize his own team's strengths and you'll lose the game um and that's what happened and by the end of the game they were you know comprehensively shown to be uh, the poorer side um I think well, I think we can talk about Paul Pogba's performance later. Pogba getting himself sent off um, was was telling, um, I, but I think ultimately that, that it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise the way Manchester United started the game, but it also shouldn't be a surprise the way they ended the game. And I think we also need to talk about Solskjaer's inability um, to turn the match around when things were going wrong. Um, I, I think Ian would like to, you know, discuss that a bit because that, that that's for me is a really telling part of where the top managers are. It's their ability to to change games when things are going against you. And what struck me, Duncan, um, significantly was in the second half, in particular, um, PSG um, were not actually that clever in the way they played. They just had obviously analysed the way that Manchester United. Um, play under Solskjaer and what they did was for for the first 45 minutes anyway they contained and um, made chances which were minimal to be fair but in the second half came out and dominated possession and what they did was they pressed in that middle third um, of the midfield won almost every second ball and made opportunities going wide uh, to left and right, to in order to to create goal scoring opportunities, and that's what impressed me about the way that um, Tuchel set his side out in the second half. That he um, he believed in his players and in the way that he had set his team up, and it was quite clear that okay, there was a couple of injuries at halftime, which set Solskjaer game plan probably back maybe one two steps but the fact of the matter is that uh, Tuchel took advantage um, of what he saw were United's weaknesses on the flanks um, at fullback in particular they got in behind the Mbappe goal was a brilliant example of counter-attacking play and how you um, you know (laughs) people are talking about the sprint but it's the power not just the not the sprint itself, the power that he showed to get in between the centre halves and buy and small and to, to take the ball away uh when the when the cross came in. And for me that's the difference between a manager who knows and believes in what he's doing and a manager who is still unsure and is a little bit um I guess I wouldn't say scared, but certainly apprehensive about his team's qualities in terms of defending. And I think that was shown up in the second half because PSG could have scored more than two goals, that's for sure. Um, and it definitely says a lot about um, where Manchester United are right now at this point in time. Uh, we know that Jose Mourinho you know, pleaded with um, Ed Woodward and the Manchester United board to uh, give him money to... Um, improve his defence. We know that he needed a central midfielder. 
he did get Fred, but Fred has taken a long time, longer than was expected, to acclimatise, um, uh, to play in front of the back four as well. And we saw them exposed against Paris Saint-Germain. That was for sure. And this was a Paris Saint-Germain who were without um, Neymar, Cavani and Rabiot. So you know, who knows what might have been the case had those three players been available. So I think it tells us a lot about more about Manchester United and where they are now in terms of elite clubs and competing in the best club competition than it does about Solskjaer's talent as a manager because he's the one who has to make the best of what he's got. But at the same time, I'm sure the Manchester United board are looking at that performance, seeing how poor it was and how little they offered in terms of um, getting back on terms in that second half and asking themselves, OK, um, we know he can win league games and cup games and whatever, but can he compete at the elite level? And I think that's the one thing that even Manchester United fans will be asking themselves now. I, th- I think this idea has been sold that the squad is good enough um, and that, that what was holding them back was the manager. Um, and, it, you know, there is definitely uh, substance to the argument that the relationship between Jose Mourinho and his players had deteriorated. Um, the way Mourinho used, uh, you know, public press conferences to try and pressure the board to improve the areas of the squad that he correctly identified needed to be strengthened damaged his relationship with the players and the players didn't perform to the level they were capable of. And Solskjaer coming in has enabled the players to improve the performance. But the key point is the players aren't good enough. They're not. They're, they're obvious weaknesses in that squad. There are obvious limitations in that squad and it doesn't matter how um, happy they are with the management, how much belief the manager fills them with. Ultimately, when you come up against the top-level European teams, top-level Premier League teams, you will eventually lose matches if your players aren't as good as the opposition. And nothing can stop that from happening. That's, it's just a, that's an inevitable fact of football. If, if your players are significantly worse than the opponents, eventually you'll lose games. Um, and... and the, the way to resolve that is not a change of manager. It has to be through more intelligent recruitment. And Manchester United have got, you know, since Ferguson left, they have ye- they've, they've stacked up years and years and years of inefficient recruitment where a lot of it's being an obsession with star names or the idea of um, we don't let a player leave for... Um, less money than we think we can get from in the transfer market. We give him a new contract to retain his value and we'll be able to sell him at some point, not noticing that every time you hand someone like Phil Jones a a new four-year contract on good financial terms when he's he's no better than a backup centre-back, that fills up a place in your squad. It uses some of your um, potential revenue to spend on better players. And and it causes a fundamental problem in the structure of the squad. And it's not just Phil Jones. There's multiple individuals in that squad who are substandard to what Manchester United require to be contenders for Champions League, to be proper contenders for the Premier League. Until that's resolved, that won't change. There was a lot, Duncan, um, made of Ankel Di Bania's performance as well on Tuesday night. And the fact that obviously he was at one point United's most expensive signing and then comes back, etc., etc., to haunt them with the way he played and 
had a nice bit of swimming at the crowd as well, which was lovely. Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, Di Maria was is not a stupid individual. If he had been better, um, I'd, well, I'd say had been helped more in his assimilation into life in Manchester, if he had been more loved by his coach, then he could well have been a very, very viable asset for Manchester United. But instead, he came in, he had a bit of a horrible time and um, a few tough games and he was sold out the door as quick as he could get the money back from by Ed Woodward. And then yet he returns, you know, two and a half years later to show up Manchester United on both flanks. Um, and that, when you talk about recruitment and the recruitment policy, I think Di Maria is a, is a good example of someone who could definitely have been a much better player for United than he was given the chance to be. Oh, absolutely. Di Maria is a great example, bought by Ed Woodward because he was a big name, um, just being voted uh, the, the, play, the man of the match in the Champions League final, available um, from Real Madrid. Um, idea was we, we are buying one of the, the top players in European football, high-profile high individual um, with marketing potential. I think they were, they were, you know, Woodward made a mistake in the idea of thinking that Di Maria was going to be a great marketing asset, but that was his thinking. He didn't think about who he was buying him for. I mean, the, 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 key, the key story about Di Maria's time at Manchester United is that they signed one of the best dribblers in European football. He arrives... Van Gaal tells him, "I don't want you." Didn't to give take, him the ball. <laughs> well, I don't want you. I don't want you to take ever take, take any take, more than two take touches. Risk, on the take ball. risk with the ball. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. And Di Maria's like, "What? <laughs> why? Why am? Why do you want me? Why did you sign me for this club? Why do you want me in the team? You, you want to take away my best asset? Do what I tell you. No more than two touches on the ball. That, and that's where the relationship started to deteriorate. And." Yeah, there were personal problems. His, his house was burgled. His family didn't settle, etc. But ultimately, he was deeply frustrated with the man who was his boss and he wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Well, another big player who has arguably been disappointing at Manchester United is Paul Pogba. And once again, he had a poor night. And this was capped off by, of course, the red card at the end, which rules him also out of this next leg. Duncan... Uh, do you feel he's ever going to become the Manchester United player that everyone who's associated with the club wishes that he can turn into? He can, but he has to uh, change his mental attitude. Um, I, I, look, Solskjaer, again, has been very clever with Pogba. He's seen that this is probably the most talented player he's got in his team. Um, his frustration has been that he felt he was being asked to do things that he wasn't good at in the midfield under Mourinho. So Solskjaer has as much as possible given him a free role. Quite often played him as a number 10. Um, even when he's played him in a three in midfield, allowed him to, to run in deep um, into the penalty area, of, often being the, the furthest forward attacker to re receive balls. And got his reward in that he's set up a lot of goals and he's scored a lot of goals. He's happy. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think Rio Ferdinand before the match described him as the most in, in form or most effective player in Europe at the moment. The problem with Pogba is you come up against good opponents like Paris Saint-Germain, you can't play as a free number 10. Um, and, and 
Solskjaer didn't ask him to do that. He played him on the left-hand side of the three. But you can't get away with not having defensive duties. You watch that first half back again, watch the number of times um, PSG sent players running in behind Pogba because they know Pogba won't pay attention to runners in behind him, passes in over the top of Pogba or in the space that he's vacated. It's an easy ball and set up scoring chances from it. They kept doing that. Pogba has all the physical and technical abilities to defend better, but he doesn't seem to want to pay attention in matches like that. doesn't seem to want to do the defensive elements. He doesn't seem to want to think about his positioning. doesn't want to seem to do the, the hard work of, of running back when things are going badly. And I, and I think what happened to him at the end of the game is just a, a great example of, of the frustration he has when things aren't going well. He, he expects to be the top dog. When another team targets him in the way that PSG does, he gets frustrated. They start losing, and then he gets sent off for a second yellow that could very easily have been a straight red card. I mean, that um, I, actually watching that live, it didn't look as bad a tackle as it actually was. And I think the reason it didn't look as bad a tackle is that Danny Alves is such a good footballer, is such a um, an ability to react that he managed to get his leg and throw himself out of the way before um, he got seriously injured. And, and it should be noted that the knee that Pogba put his studs down is the one that Danny Alves has just had reconstructed. So he just only just come back from a serious injury at, at 35 that you know could could in, in principle could end his effectiveness at, at top champion. League level, and you know, Danny Alves is a great contrast to Pogba. He's kind of an example of what Pogba should be: super talented player who who has been at the top clubs in Europe for years and years and years. He's won more titles um, than any active player at all. Pep Guardiola wanted to bring him to Manchester City because he knows he has those qualities. He knows he can lead a team by example on the pitch and and his attitude in the dressing room. And and that game, you know. Danny's just coming back from injuries, not long recovered. He was sensational playing as a right wing back. Super effective, tactically intelligent, creating chances because he focuses. He knows those are the games that really count. And he knows that at the top level, when you're playing Champions League, you have to be on the top of your game, mentally, physically, technically. Pogba doesn't understand that yet. And if he does, if someone can get it through to him, and maybe Solskjaer's the man because he, he did coach him as a youngster at Manchester United, so he, he possibly has the relationship to say to Pogba, look, I love you, I think you're fantastic, but if you want to be one of the best players in the world, you've got to add this dimension to, the, to your game. But until he gets that, he's not going to go there. It's just simply not going to go there. And just to round this off, Johnny, as well, I'd say that if I were looking at Solskjaer, I would give Paul Pogba a DVD of Marquinhos' performance on Tuesday night as a representation of what you do when you're under pressure. You retain absolute control of yourself and your emotions in a game and you play tactically the best that you possibly can because what Marquinhos did, did on, on Tuesday at Old Trafford was sensational. Oh, you call him a duddian? A dud? Yeah, Marquinhos dud. It's a good old-fashioned <laughs> Scottish media expression there. <laughs> Certainly not in this, this case. Um, I thought he was outstanding. And, um, and he's one of those players who sometimes slips under the radar. But 
um, performs outstandingly um, and actually controls games. And um, if Pogba could take a leaf out of his book in terms of um, controlling himself, controlling his emotions and being able to apply tactical discipline, then he would be the kind of player Marquinhos already is. Well, today Ed Woodward was announcing Manchester United's three-month financial results. There were a number of interesting issues there. He was speaking to the press and he refused to say whether or not Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would get the job full-time. But there were a number of other little interesting points in there. Well, what Manchester United announced in their their, um, quarterly accounts was that they incurred £19.6 of exceptional items. Um, relating to compensation for the former management manager and certain members of his coaching staff, um, which is pretty much in line with what um, what we reported on the on the podcast um, just before uh, Mourinho was sacked that it would be a minimum cost to Manchester United of eighteen million pounds um, to dismiss Mourinho. Um, I understand that the the six assistants. That, um, that went with him um, when he was dismissed, that their um, annual wages amounted to roughly two million a year. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether all whether that exceptional item that, that United have announced um, is the end of it, because this is just a quarter account. So it could potentially be that they're um, they're spreading uh, the cost of dismissing. Uh, those coaching staff over um, further uh, financial periods because the the way Mourinho's um, payoff was structured was he had to basically got one year's worth of salary and um, the, uh, the the net cost to Manchester United would be a minimum of eighty million pounds is what I was briefed but it's a you know it's a it's a substantial amount of money however. Um, you can say that in the, in the broader scheme of things for Manchester United, it's an affordable sum of money because they they reported that um, their expected, well, they had record revenues of over 280, 208 million pounds for the quarter, and they guided that their their they expect the revenue for this season to go up another 15 million to uh, 630 million, which will be a record for for them and for any English club. Um, one little thing I find interesting in, in Manchester United's accounts, and maybe we can discuss more in future, is that they're they're actually stalling in commercial revenue, and they've been stalled in commercial revenue for quite a long time. So they reported an increase of just 0.6 million, um, less than one percent um, over the over the previous year on on commercial revenue, um, and uh, you know that. That's, although they have record sums um, for an English club for commercial revenue, that they've actually not been increasing that very much recently. And I think that's something to to pay attention to is whether they're able to um, to to get the kind of um, uplift on commercial revenue that they've done over the over the past ten years, and was that uh, was the fundamental reason for Ed Woodward getting or one of the fundamental reasons for Edward were being promoted to chief executive in the first place. He, he has been more successful in, in turning Manchester United's status as one of the most popular clubs in, in world football into hard cash for the Glazers. Um, but that you know, deluge of, of 
commercial income that he managed to bring in has, has, has stalled a bit in recent years and stalled again in these accounts, even at a time where other revenue sources have increased at a reasonable rate. I agree with Duncan regarding maximising revenue. Um, it's becoming more and more difficult for clubs um, at that level <clears throat> excuse me, to um, increase revenue substantially um, on a week-by-week, month-by-month basis um, because really in terms of match day revenue and obviously broadcast rights, which bring in most of the money, as well as uh, marketing and um, advertising and commercial um, sponsorship contracts are concerned. These things are pretty much maxed out already. So it's going to be a difficult one for United to substantially increase a revenue base in the next four to five years, unless, of course, there is a breakdown or a dissolution of the um, the broadcast deal, which includes all 20 Premier League clubs, and they're allowed to sell their own rights via digital um, pay-per-view basis, which at this moment in time, um, as far as I know, we the, the actual technology itself to, to, to be real-time doesn't exist. And that's where, of course, the next big payoff in football is coming, and that's to be able to sell those rights um, as pay-per-view for a match. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things where the Glazers are going to have to just suck it up um, with regards to um, revenues being fairly stable but not impressive in, in terms of their growth. But at the same time, as I said, the wage bill seems to have gone down in terms of its percentage of revenue, which is quite impressive for one of the biggest clubs in the world. Ian, are you Wait, doubling what? up your work as a pundit there with uh, an advert for Cavonia? You want to go so, and get a glass of water? <clears throat> sorry, yeah, I, I've had a really sore throat the last couple of days, unfortunately. Oh. I've got a glass of water here, though. I think you need to go and chase some butterflies. Me and Duncan have had our time out, haven't we? So. <clears throat> well, I am going to chase my butterflies in Italy as of tomorrow, as you know. So. Ah, yes. He just needs to feed himself as well as you did, Johnny. And then, uh, yeah, that's what I need. I need, I need some of that beer. roast marrow and parsley salad. That's what I need. Yeah, he's going to have to do a lot of eating to get anywhere near me, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was just going to say, just to bring it back to where we started today, which is the quality of Manchester United squad. Um, the thing about when you look at any of Manchester United's account, accounts is how much operating profit they make. They're in an absolute different league to any club in England, um, actually any club in Europe. And, you know, UEFA's recent benchmarking report uh, pointed that out. And for the, the two, 2017 um, financial year, they made 222 million euros of, of profit. Uh, the second best in the Premier League was Arsenal, who are um, more than 80 million behind them. And basically, the the, that shows what a financial behemoth Manchester United are. The only reason they don't have um, a big, a really big bottom line profit is because of the debts that were used to buy the club by the Glazers and are still being paid off at a substantial work per year. But fundamentally, there is the cash there coming into the club. There's free revenue coming into the club every year that could be spent on sorting out those squad issues. There's no reason why Manchester United shouldn't have the best squad um, in the Premier League or at least on a par with Manchester City because they have the cash to do it. But not enough of it has been made 
available to the managers to buy players because it's being used to to pay mm-hmm. off um, the money that the Glazers borrowed against the value of the club to buy the club in the first place. Well, there was another terrific result in the Champions League on Wednesday when Tottenham beat Dortmund 3-0. They're obviously going great guns, as uh, Rafa Honigstein explained to us in the podcast last week. And topping the German Bundesliga, Tottenham dispatched them with almost ease. Is this yet another example of the qualities of their manager and why he will possibly be on his way to Real Madrid in the summer? I don't think they dispatched Dortmund with ease at all. I think that was a game they could easily have lost. Um, Dortmund were obviously the better team in the first half of the game. Um, Far more chances created, um, tactical control of the match. Uh, Tottenham were fortunate to go in at half-time level. What you've really got to give credit to Maurizio Pochettino for in this game was his ability to turn it around at half-time. And that's the measure of what we were talking about earlier with Solskjaer not having. The very top coaches are able to change matches that are going against them by identifying the the reasons that the opponents are beating them and and tweaking tactics. In this case, he didn't change personnel at half-time, but he, he changed the the way his players were operating on the field and took almost total control of the match from uh, the start of the second half, got their goal, got a couple of it, couple more goals near the end to make it a comprehensive victory. Um, he was, you know, he couldn't stop himself smiling as he came off the pitch, and and understandably so because that was done with a significantly weakened squad, albeit Dortmund themselves were significantly weakened. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't they were they were they were playing opponents that they should have a chance against. But what was most impressive to me there was the way Pochettino turned that game around in in a difficult situation and essentially guaranteed or almost guaranteed their their uh, progress to the next round of the Champions League. And that's, you know, we've criticised Pochettino on the podcast many times for his failure to actually um, turn successful seasons into trophy-winning seasons. But there's no doubt he has a lot of the elements you'd look for in a, a top-level coach in that ability to improve players, um, set out diff- different tactical structures, but but most importantly, add value during games. Um, and if he can continue to do that, maybe he can get over that mental hurdle um, of actually turning ability in the field and very good seasons into excellent seasons by winning trophies. I think specifically, Duncan, he um, he recognised that Dortmund were having most of their successful um, forays uh, in attack <clears throat> on Tottenham's right-hand side and the ball was being deferred um, from the central midfield that way. And what he did was he, he, he basically flipped that on Dortmund and what he got was he, he asked Winks in particular and Eriksson to feed for Tongan at left wing back to make runs down the, the, the Dortmund left side, the, their Dortmund's right hand side, and then feed the ball inside again. And obviously, you had um, Heumann Son there, who was 
Reading Mind and able to score goals. But the fact of the matter is that he identified a weakness on the right-hand side of Dortmund's um, team um, where why their strength in the first half was um, in the opposite. And therefore, he was able to, to switch uh, the, um, the pressure off of his own team onto Dortmund and what turned out to be a very successful tactical switch for, for Tottenham. Um, I don't think any of us doubt what Pochettino has as a coach in terms of his ability to, um, to set a game plan and, and, and carry that out. But what we saw and what was a little bit different um, in that game against Borussia Dortmund was his ability to change it in-game, which he's not always been able to do. And that's what sets great coaches apart. I read a brilliant um, couple of tweets um, today about um, Arsene Wenger um, disseminating Champions League games in the first half, both um, Manchester United's and Tottenham's, and Arsenal fans saying, if only we was that good at half-time in the dressing room at Arsenal and doing the same thing, then maybe, <laughs> maybe we'd have won more trophies. Um, so maybe he should have watched the game on the telly rather than uh, watching from the dugout. And, and, and you know what? It's, it's, a sort of, you know, it's a comical kind of um, exaggeration, but at the same time, it's a very salient point. The dugout is not the best place to see a game from in terms of its tactical, the way it plays mm-hmm. out. And it takes a very good coach to be able to recognise, uh, see outside of his own team and at the other team and then change it to be in your favour. And that's what Pochettino did, did against Dortmund. And I think they were a little bit, I don't think it was a 3-0 win in all, in all sort of, you know, balance or honesty. Uh, you know, 2-0 maybe have just been about right. But the fact of the matter is, they've got one foot in the quarterfinals. And against a team who are leading the Bundesliga by five points over Bayern Munich. So you, you can't take that away from, from Spurs. Um, sometimes these things go for you. But I think all credit to Pochettino for the way that he did do it in the second half. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you say about Wenger because you can, you can ask whether it's about not being able to see things well from the touchline. And obviously you don't have as good a view. You know, it's, it, As journalists, we... We can tell we know which press boxes are good, and sometimes you can be too tight to the the touchline. It's actually quite hard to see the tactical shape from from there. So, but that's what the managers have to deal with um, all the time. It could be emotional control. It could be that Wenger, when he was on the side of the pitch um, and when it was his team playing, wasn't able to uh, separate his emotions. And, and you know, anyone who's worked with Arsene Wenger will tell you that. The, the guy's an absolute gentleman. Um, uh, one of the the manager of all managers you'd choose to sit down to have dinner with if you if you had the opportunity and just have a, a conversation um, about football because an incredibly intelligent and um, uh, very open in, in his opinions and and uh, his his views in football and his um, his expertise, but. When results had gone against him, a very angry, um, tetchy individual, it could be that he just didn't have the emotional control to to handle games. But there actually, in my experience, there are very, very few coaches who are able to read matches while they're happening and come up with solutions and pass them on to their players um, in situ. 
uh, you know, I, I, I think a good example here is Antonio Conte, um, who won the title at Chelsea um, in a canter once he'd, he'd changed the tactics fundamentally. Um, several games into the season, actually, I think after a defeat at Arsenal was the, the point where he moved from a back four to, to a back five um, and then turned them into the best counter-attacking team in the division, won that season. But Conte, I remember watching him play Manchester United and being posed with a, a tactical problem which had been specifically designed to take advantages of the weaknesses in his system and just being bereft of ideas. And then playing Manchester United again, um, who, using a, again a very similar system and an unusual system against them. So, so he'd seen it, his analysts had seen it, and they still didn't have a solution the second time um, they went into the game. So some of the top, top managers aren't able to do this. There's very few of them that are able to do it. And, and I think that, that's why I think it, it bodes well for Pochettino that he's shown um, the ability to do it against a good intelligent manager and a lot of capable players which is which is what Dortmund were um, this week and Duncan you mentioned there about um, one of the key things is not just being able to um, process and then decide upon how you change up it's about being able to pass it on to your players and of course Jose Mourinho was famous for sending notes onto the pitch with his substitutes as you remember uh, in terms of tactical changes and how things should work out and one of the most famous um, in my recollection was a very cold night at Blackburn Rovers. Chelsea were leading 1-0. 71 minutes, he makes a substitution, goes to a pack five, sends on a piece of paper, which then Captain John Terry um, reads. And what John Terry always did was he ripped those notes up and just threw them on the pitch. But this one he stuck in his sock. And it was very poignant for me because I thought that's really unusual. And about a year afterwards, I had the opportunity to ask John Terry why he put it in his sock. And he said, because it was just so funny. And I said, why was that? He said, um, because usually he gives me instructions about how we should play and how we should reset the team and everything else. And this one just said, don't f*** it up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that was Jose Mourinho's way of going on the other way, other side of things and saying, you've done everything right, just keep doing it. Brilliant. And with that anecdote, we shall move things on to the quickfire round. Now, today we're going to look at bosses who are struggling in the Premier League. We're going to ask if the clubs should go for a new boss or stick with the same old dross. And we're going to start with you, Ian, with a guy that you talked about in depth, very interestingly, may I add, on Monday's show, Maurizio Sarri. Yeah, um, he's, a, he's a conundrum, is Maurizio Sarri. Um, he clearly is a man who has his own thoughts and, and is very stubborn. Um, and um, Duncan um, would, he said he sided with him in terms of uh, he liked stubborn people um, because they reminded of himself. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, Sarri's not going to change his ways, Johnny. Um, he will, he will effectively do everything that um, he thinks is right to get the results that he wants. He's got the advantage of a Carabao Cup final against Manchester City, um, and obviously a, a Europa League campaign that continues, and he's obviously the opportunity to make top four. I think that he, 
I'm not saying he's making progress. So I don't think he's same old draws in terms of um, the way that Antonio Conte was um, effectively alienating everyone. But I think that he is playing a very, very divisive um, tactic with Marina Granovskaya, who is um, in control of things in terms of the football department at Chelsea. So, um, look, it, w- it will be decided between Granovskaya and, and Sari uh, between now and the end of the season. But I expect to see out to the end of the season um, and where he finishes in the league and or with trophies will decide whether or not he is um, new boss or simple dross. Ian, I know you like a punt, so I'm going to ask you for a, a big prediction. Next Chelsea manager, who's it going to be? Zidane. <laughs> that will be interesting if that happens. Okay, Duncan, next one. Unai Emery. I, I think um, Unai Emery's done a a pretty good job at Arsenal this season. Um, I think you've got to take into account um, where the club has been for the last decade. Um, the degree of change he's been asked to um, bring about, uh, the quality of players he has to work with, the um, limited amount of um, spending and investment that's been, been made in that squad. And he's tried to make quite radical changes in the way they they play. Um, look, if you if you were to look at the Premier League before the start of the season and predict how the clubs would finish, I think Arsenal are pretty much where you'd expect them to be. Um, but there are signs of definite improvement in the way they've been playing. Um, don't think he's a bad coach at all. I, his track record says that he is um, astute at tactical level and the only time he's really, really struggled is, was at Paris Saint-Germain where um, with one of the hardest dressing rooms possible to manage. Um, there's been a lot of behind-the-scenes change at Arsenal before he came to the club and, and, and again during the season he's at the club. So, I, you know, unless Arsenal can secure someone of significantly improved skills um, in the summer to replace him with, I, I think they, they need to carry on and, and let, let the man have, um, have more time to implement what he's trying to implement there. Duncan, I threw Ian a curveball and I've got one for you too. How do you assess very briefly the way he's managed Mesut Ozil? Look, it's, it's, it's a tough one because... Um, Arsenal overpaid to keep Mesut Ozil at the club. Um, I think they put themselves in a difficult situation. I think part of the reason they gave him the contract was because they knew they had to lose Alexis Sanchez and they wanted a a PR um, counterpoint to it, which was to keep um, their other key creator in the squad. They definitely overpaid on wages. Um, He he clearly doesn't fit into Emery's system. Um, I think he's he's trying to pressure the club to to move him on. The difficulty there is how do you how do you get the player who, um, who when his contract was running down was very clear that he only wanted to move to one of the very top clubs um, to accept that uh, he, if he's going to leave Arsenal. He's going to have to move to a lesser club, so it, it's 
I think Emery was was stuck with a with a hard um, a hard pack of cards there, and he's um, he's 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 playing it in a, a kind of risky way because he's asking the club to make a, make a decision to support him on it. So it, yeah, it's a it's a tough one, but I understand where he's coming from. Okay, Ian Everton's Marco Silva. Well, they're um, very um, unfavourite Michael Van Gowen lookalike, Mr. Jonathan Norcroft on this. You're going podcast. to have to explain. You're going to have to explain who Michael Van Gowen is because I don't know if it's my age or my cultural. Um... Well, you don't like the diaras? Is that what you're saying? You don't like darts? I'm not a, a man of the okra. Is that no, that, that says it? that says oh, okra. Okra is a colour that. Um, uh, Michelangelo used painting the Sistine Chapel. It's something like nothing to do with where you stand when you play darts. But anyway, um, I know what the Indians call lady fingers. I don't think we want to go into that. To be fair, <laughs> okra, 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 as an O K R A. Yeah, that, that's a different thing altogether. Okra as an O C H R E is a colour. Anyway, let's get away from this. <laughs> and get back the key. The key point here is that Jonathan Northcroft is Corey Stoll's body double. So you just, That's you got that one exactly wrong. Right. Exactly, exactly right. I get that one. I get that one. Exactly right. Okay, let me get back to the original question then. Marco Silva, um, at this moment in time, looks like a very expensive dud, as the um, phrase you used earlier, Johnny, in this podcast. Um, he's someone who has been invested in, in himself um, significantly um, by Everton and someone who um, who's... Well, we assume his transfer targets also have been invested in heavily and they are not producing the results that anyone expected because Everton is a club which has ambitions of being certainly in European football, if not in the top four. So um, Farad Moshri is going to have to make a decision about how much more he's willing to invest in Marco Silva's decision-making, in his recruitment considerations and in the way that Everton play because it's not like even they're being beaten um, stylishly. Uh, they're they're losing games, playing badly, and um, they're they're not a team who are feared by anyone, despite the amount of investment. And it's even um, interesting now to see that players like Richarlison, who you'd have thought, having moved for fifty million pounds from Watford uh, on a very good contract are now being courted quite openly by other clubs, probably on the basis that he's not very happy at Goodison Park. Sorry, lost my headphone there. You might have to edit out those three seconds. Um, and for that reason, um, as, as, as painful as it might seem or feel to Evertonians, I think they have to make a decision because you can't keep throwing good money after bad. You have to make a decision about whether or not this guy is the right guy or whether you need to find someone else. The question, of course, which is always the one um, that I would address first is, if you're going to get rid of your manager, you have to know who's coming in before you get rid of your manager. And I don't really see that many people out there um, who necessarily going to be better than Marco Silva in terms of his style of football and the the way in which he plays. It might be the case they might, that they just have to stomach the bad results, um, have a season in a kind of limbo where they've, they've not you know, produced or certainly not 
achieved what they wanted to. Um, but that uh, a pre-season um, next, uh, this summer coming and with some new recruits and with Silver still at the helm, that they will actually make a, a reasonable challenge for their what they want to achieve, i.e. European football and, you know, getting breaking into top six. So um, I, I think it's too early to pass judgment in Silva. I, I really do. I think that um, it's it's easy to get rid of a, a manager whose results tell you that or, or suggest that it, uh, you can sack him if you, it, with justification. In Silva's case, I think as a young manager, I think um, everyone as a as a team, as a club, have got a lot to do in terms of reorganising the recruitment strategy and um, give Silva more backing in terms of creating a team rather than just buying players who might make a difference to the team. And round us off, Duncan, with Claude Puel at Leicester. Well, you know, as we were discussing with um, with Corey Stoll on Wednesday, um, the Leicester City <laughs> good author, um, you know, Puel's done a good job at Leicester um, for me, and I think for I think for most people looking at the way the team are playing, um, the squad he's put in the pitch. Um, however. He's not popular with the Leicester City fans. He's not popular with some of the Leicester City players. The noise around the club is very much that the owners are close to and have been considering change for quite a while. So I think um, it's going to happen unless unless he goes on a outstanding run of results um, for the rest of the season. I think Puel's time at Leicester is limited and there will be a new manager in there before too long. Okay, well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut, but fear not, we are going to be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. We have our own transfer window official account, at Transfer Podcast. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian is at Garbo SJ. And, of course, Duncan is, well, he's got the best one, really, at Duncan Castles. Straightforward. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening.